This episode of the Podular Modcast is brought to you by Recovery Effects and Devices. Quality handmade effects and modules paying homage to classic, synth, and effects designs while innovating for today's studios and musicians. My name is Tim Held. And I'm Ian Price. Welcome to the Podular Modcast, where we rise and fall the waves of modular synthesis. We are recording the intro from my car today. Welcome to the Podular Modcast. Uh, It is a wild day out here in Seattle. Uh, We're in the beautiful area of Columbia City, Seattle. This is Othello. This is Othello. We're in the beautiful area of Othello, which is basically Columbia City. Tim grew up in the country. I did. All right, so let's talk some events. Modular on the spot, Seattle, July 14th. Cal Anderson Park, Seattle, Modular on the spot. August 11th, Volunteer Park. September 8th, at Gasworks Park. All those are 6 to 9 p.m. Contact them on Facebook. June 23rd, North Coast Modular Collective Meetup is happening in Ann Arbor, Michigan. Go to northcoastmodularcollective.com for more details. If you want to plug your synth meetup, your modular, uh, modular show, classes, anything like that, info at podularmodcast.com. Dot com, or you can find us on Instagram at podular underscore modcast. Thank you to our Patreon subscribers. We really appreciate it. Uh, we are at patreon.com slash podular modcast. And uh, feel free to send us more adjective and noun submissions. Just send us words. I really, yeah, please, please send us words. I'm, I'm begging you on Twitter, on Instagram, any, any way that's convenient. I've now, got, I've got an adjective and noun for you. Okay. Sloppy intro. Yes. <laughs> today's we, we got that down. <laughs> today's guest is Randy Jones of Madrona Labs. He is the mastermind behind the amazing soft synths Alto and Kaivo. Uh, these are virtual modular plugins. They have a very fascinating architecture, and they are uh, and Alto in particular is said to have a patching system modeled after bootless. So what does that mean? We're going to find out. You can go to uh, madronalabs.com and try out the software without buying it. You just can't save anything without buying the license. And it's actually really affordable as far as uh, plug-in software goes. Yeah. <laughs> Randy also created the Sound Plane, which is a control surface. It's really beautiful. It uh, allows you to play a plane of sound, essentially. As opposed to a keyboard controller, this has a continuous surface that will send MIDI that bends so that the notes are spaced continuously. It's a very beautiful instrument. Now, when you say beautiful, it's not only beautiful in functionality, but it is gorgeous to look at. Yes, made out of uh, some very high-quality hardwoods, and it's a joy to play. It feels like it responds to your touch in some very interesting ways it is uh it has a lot of resistance but you're touching wooden surfaces that are in a wooden casing and you can feel it hit different points in a way that is really somewhat um unique the amount of jokes that were just in all of what you just said i just 
but it's not that kind of show. It's just not that kind of show. All right, well, let's talk to Randy. All right, we are just pulling up. And I see you've got a bunch of gear in your in your <laughs> sh- workshop here, uh, ranging from synthesizers to pedals and through a couple different decades, I imagine. Um, what, what's, what's your story with getting into the whole thing? <laughs> That's a bad question. I tried to... It's not really bad, but the answer is really long. I mean, <laughs> you could ask, uh, like, what were the first few years of it, and that might sort of bound yeah. the answer. In a, well, I guess, yeah, I guess I'm just way. trying to see... Obviously, you're still you're still interested in fixing up older equipment, but you currently are work. you know, your main focus right now is working on, like, VST plugins. How do we get from VST plugins from working on old uh, variable filters with tubes in them and stuff? I think I, I started out with computers, and I'm back to it now. I mean, um, I started out in a family that was it was pretty unusually musical for like kind of a uh, white suburban family of my age. My parents just had a really awesome record collection, and uh, my mom was a a belly dancer, you know, Middle Eastern dance, and uh, we used to go to a lot of jazz shows and stuff. And I, I grew up in Madison, Wisconsin, which was a um, it's a kind of cultural oasis in the Midwest, you know, one of the one of the medium-sized college towns where there's the reasonable amount of interesting stuff going on. So, um, you know, um, my I, my um, audio life uh, and and surroundings were actually pretty rich that I started out in, like stuff like that. Um, um, like we used to go to Art Ensemble of Chicago shows sometimes down at at the at the Capitol Square there, and um, which is you know it's free jazz. It's it's pretty intense stuff. And um, then there's like um, there was the belly dance music, which is amazing and super rhythmic, and um, a whole dance tradition um, and electronic stuff they had, and and uh, then all the all the stuff that a lot of people had in the. Uh, that was a little more popular, like the, the Kirby Hancock Headhunters record. I remember was an early um, thing that I was just super grooving on for my parents' record collection. And then um, somehow, to bring it back to the what I'm doing now, like computers came around, and I think it was maybe 84, possibly, when I got my first one, which is a VIC-20. Oh, yeah. And my dad was, uh, my dad was a computer programmer by trade. He made me this... Um, this bookmark probably in the late seventies or early eighties when we actually used to work together on writing programs for, um, um, I guess what would technically be called mini computers, but were these things that took up a whole room, uh-huh. you know, um, that made by companies like data general or, uh, digital equipment corporation. This one was a mod comp. I remember. And I, I'm, I'm remembering the date cause it was shortly after the first star Wars movie came out. And that was when, uh, 80, I think. Right. Was it 79? I think it was 79. Something like that. God, there's so many people right now that are screaming at us. They're like, you guys are the wrong kind of nerds. Uh. Um, But um, yeah, so that was, that happened. And um, I was making um, vector illustrations of um, um, Star Wars fighter ships soon after that. And my, it's some great combination of childhood whimsy and then really learning 3D graphics at the same time. It was, it was pretty great. Uh, and so when I got my own computer, just making um, weird bleeps and boops and um, aut- and visual stuff at the same time was something that seemed really fun to do with no kind of, 
you know, you're just a kid playing and, uh, okay. so I was, I had basic and my computer and uh, I made it do some fun stuff. So it sounds like maybe you were, was it your love of computers and interest in computers that maybe got you into electronic music or do you primarily listen to electronic music or it seems like a lot of people get into developing after finding a love for a certain type of music but if you're working on vector stuff that early and everything and it sounds like you were pretty young i guess well, i was like rhythmic music uh -huh. um dance dance music and you know later um when the rave stuff which some of the first electronic dance music that i was hearing um came out I was super into that, but that, you know, that jumps a whole decade. So, um, yeah, just, um, it really, you know, you listen to pop music, right? And some people listen to pop music and they remember all the words. I have a hard time hearing the words in a pop song. Um, I think recently I've gotten better at it, but I listen to a pop song and what, what sticks in my mind are the weird sounds in it. Uh, you know the whatever production tricks in it are in it that make it sound different which of course is something people are always doing in pop music so there's so like when gary newman came around for example i was like wow what are these sounds they're so cool and uh it just creates such an environment that's amazing and uh, you know the, the herbie hancock with his uh, his arps and stuff for the same reason and those the roads for for that um just i was yeah always a like more of a consumer of of new sounds in music than and than a lot of other aspects of it maybe so and that's you know electronic music is you know it's more it tends to be more focused on timbre than a lot of other aspects of music so i guess that was a natural fit yeah and are we talking what what really blew your mind up and are we talking man child herbie or are we talking rocket herbie well, my first exposure would have been uh, Headhunters, and then um, it wasn't until later that I heard the Sextant album, which I think came out mm -hmm. a little before that, and it's probably my favorite now. Yeah, he was working with, I think Patrick Gleason. I could be really wrong there, but um, he was working with some other producers that would make patches and things also, and create these little, um, um, yeah. Well, I could play it for you, but then I wouldn't be by the mic. So, um, <laughs> but it's, it's a great, it's a great record really interesting so to to condense what you've created for the listeners that may not be familiar with with randy jones madrona labs has created both uh hardware controllers the sound plane as well as three vsts that are available currently one that's available in the near future probably a few others you ran orac records for seven or eight years had many uh, releases by uh, by some pretty amazing artists, Bruno Prinsato, Sutek, Caro, who is your recording alias, uh, at least one of them. Are, are there more than just Caro? Um, pretty much just Caro, yeah. I've uh, recorded a very small amount of stuff under my own name, but uh, not much. You helped create the, uh, or maybe fully created, the Jitter world of plugins, for cycling seventy four, well, definitely not fully. I'm gonna, I'm gonna do a. Uh, I'll, I'll fill you in on who all the other important people were in these projects mm -hmm. after you wrap up here. Mm -hmm. yeah. <laughs> well, what else am I missing? It's a milestone. Well, um, I think you hit on all the big things that I've been doing since I was kind of a, a grown up in the world of music. There, um, 
but I'm going to, I'm going to be quick to fill in the, the other important players. So with, um, with Madrona labs, um, I, I designed the UIs and programmed the, um, the VST and audio units, the, the, the software instruments. Um, and, uh, it, it's only with the help of uh, Brian Willoughby, who's a Seattle-based electronic engineer, that the um, this hardware, this instrument, uh, this very touchable, wonderful, playable wooden um, addition to the world of electronic <laughs> interfaces has come to fruition. He's designed all the boards and things inside of it that make it... Um, uh, are part of what makes it so special. So, um, and also with ORAC, I think you've met my friend Constantine actually. Um, mm -hmm. It might have been a while because um, he's been in LA for 10 years now, give or take. But um, you know, we used to work together on the, the Robo Trash night sometimes. And um, his, yeah, he was definitely as, as, as much a part of um, curating that music as I was. And then with Jitter, um, it's um, it was um, myself um, that came on um, to assist um, Joshua Kate Clayton, who is like um, a guy whose um, electronic music I was really impressed by, and um, was also he was also doing amazing things as a programmer uh, for Cycling Seventy Four, and um, how that came together was um, Joshua had been um, taking the lead role on this project to make an, a, a visual component to the... Um, where, where MSP is to Max's core as being an audio set of objects, um, Cycling wanted its own set of, of video objects and... Um, um, more general data processing objects that were complementary to the Max system. Uh, so Joshua was working on that, um, uh, more on the side of software, making this suite of matrix processing objects. Um, and he made it way more general than you'd have to, almost like a kind of MATLAB sort of thing that would work within Max. Very uh, interesting approach to it. And at the same time, I was working on audio-visual um, shows um, and to do it, yeah, there wasn't much stuff at the time that you could just buy. So I was writing objects, uh, that would use, that would allow Max to harness the OpenGL engine inside of some of the first computers that it was really, really worth doing it on. Like if you remember the sort of toilet seat shaped, uh, iBook mm -hmm. that, that was out in like, um, I guess, <laughs> I guess we're talking like 98, 2000, something like that. Yeah. Um, that had, I think it was called a Rage 128 graphics processor, um, something like that. So I could do these pretty cool line graphics. And, you know, if, if you didn't want to do textures, uh, it was great. So, um, but, you know, for doing minimal graphics and stuff. So anyway, I was doing my own shows with this and, um, and, and playing out. And then somehow we managed to meet each other. And they were like, hey, this would be a good addition to our project. And I came along and I, I worked with them on that for a few years, uh, sort of from... 2002 through four or five, something like that. I was sitting there listening to you and I was like, I know what my fiance feels like when I'm talking about modular stuff with my modular friends. You She's think you do. 
so there's there's a bit of a gap in there. You you got interested in rhythmic music, new sounds. What was your first interest creatively? Was it doing something artistically? Was it experimenting to entertain yourself? Wow. I mean, I guess, um, you know, what do you, how do you call the development that leads to wanting to do creative stuff in your life? I mean, that's a pretty interesting question. Um, it, my main memories of it are just sitting around, you know, I had a, my parents had a reel to reel tape recorder and, um, this, uh, and they had another, they had another tape recorder that was like a little cassette, one of those kind of square rectangular cassette recorders with the handle at one end. Um, mm-hmm. and, uh, yeah, Ian's going, mm-hmm. uh, and the, the, like the built-in mic at the other end. Um, and so I would bounce. I remember I was the, so my, my mom for her dance stuff had a Middle Eastern, a doombeck, a, a clay drum, uh, with a goatskin head. And I would play some rhythms on that and like play the Vic 20 and like try and overdub from one. A lot of people have this story where you're overdubbing through air from one tape recorder to another because that's the first thing you could find to do as a kid. And I, yeah, I think most people have these stories end up being uh, creatively involved in music somewhere down the line later. Um, but how, you know, how do you, how do you talk about, you know, your question was like, what's, what's that about? But that's such a kind of a deep question. Like, are you doing it to fulfill your connection with the universe or, um, what was your make, childhood like, make man? other people happy <laughs> or make yourself happy or, uh, yeah, develop, develop who you are as a person. Uh, yeah. It's complicated. It's complicated. Yeah. Yeah, well, I, I like I like weird sounds though. Yeah. <laughs> hey, we'd like to introduce you to a new module by Recovery Effects, the Bleeding Hearts, a random sequencer, rhythm generator, destroyer, and filter. The Bleeding Hearts is an effect device that, at its core, starves, bit crushes, splatters, and filters audio sources like no other. Feeding a gate signal to the Bleeding Hearts enables a whole new world of strange and random analog-generated movement. Every position of the eight-step sequencer can bleed into each other and interact with the destruction effect, creating gated and filtered splatters, glitches, and crunches that move to the beat of your patch. Whoa. Alto is... I, I, I want to get into the nuts and bolts of this because it's described as uh, kind of taking a cue from, from Bukla. Yeah, we're looking at it here. So, yeah, let me, let me um, give you a little of... Alto's origin story, because it's kind of one that is actually a little more um, tractable to me than like why music. Um, but it's so I, I after the after the jitter um, work for Cycling seventy four, I was back. I decided to go back and get my master's. I was at the University of Victoria, uh, working with a a friend and mentor, um, Dr. Andy Schloss up there, who's um, been for many years a player of this instrument called um, the radio drum or radio baton that was actually a thing invented by um, Max Matthews, who's one of the sort of founding fathers of electronic music. And um, the radio drum is um, sort of a, um, it's a, it's about as one is about as big as a, this laptop more or less. And it's um, it's allows you to, it's a sensor that's very, um, fast and allows you to detect where in an area of space above the sensor 
um, the ends of two drumsticks are, say, every millisecond or something like that, fast enough for good rhythmic music um, to be played on it. And so, uh, you know, there are a lot of uses for this instrument. And I was up at Victoria, and part of the work I was doing there was helping them make a new uh, generation of the instrument. And wow. sort of, I realized that um, the, the radio drum works by sending out um, alternating current from antennas inside a inside the the pad that you drum on and these are picked up by little coils in the ends of the the drumsticks and our our, our project we were working on there um was sort of to make this whole to make a, a software-based solution um to run the whole um radio drum so that you could try a lot of filters and things really easily um basically moving it from hardware where it had been before um, to software so you could, um, you know, develop on it more quickly and um, come up with a better instrument. And I, I noticed how it was very sensitive near the surface when you were hitting it um, because that's where capacitive sensing works really well. It, it falls off and becomes more noisy, less sensitive as you get farther away from the, um, the, the, F, the two things that are capacity couple get far farther away from each other um so i thought well i've always wanted to make more of a tabletop thing that you don't um drum on with sticks because i'm not a drummer but i want to make like i'm always like i'm always sort of like drumming you know on the table like this and, and stuff you know maybe nervously or when i get musical ideas it's just part of the deal but that's not that doesn't correspond to any instrument i know but if it did correspond to an instrument it would be something like this two-dimensional surface that would do different stuff depending on where you're tapping it so um based on the capacitive sensing idea and kind of what i wanted out of an instrument i made actually at uvic um i'm wrestling with the cord here <laughs> I, I made this thing which is there's a bunch of cds on it uh -huh. maybe we can get off of here now but um this is the prototype that i made at uvic and what we're looking at now I think you can see it online or in my uh, master's thesis, there might be a picture of it, but it's like a, a kind of brutalist looking frame of plywood with a <laughs> bunch of big screws in it and like 16 strips of copper that go up and down it. And there's rubber hanging out of the kind of sandwich of plywood and a couple of big connectors on, on the ends. And this was actually the first um, prototype of... Um, um, what became the sound plane later. So I was working on the sound plane project and I thought it would, you know, take six months or something to get something saleable from where I was at. And of course it ended up taking two years, maybe two and a half. So during that time I had also planned to get this synthesizer out so people would have something to play with it that was really designed to go well with the sound plane, a patchable software synthesizer. And I, realize okay well i'll put this out instead as my first um product to generate some revenue and that was alto and um i still love playing it that's good how how long ago was that <laughs> um so gosh the sound plane came out 2010 i want to okay. say okay so alto is a soft synth plug-in in the vst and audio units world and it works with all the normal things that mm -hmm. Um, synthesizer plugins do the sound plane um just communicates with this one uh usb cable 
that you mm -hmm. see, which also powers it, which is really cool because you only have one thing to plug in. Um, and so you plug it into the computer, and then you you run this app that um, it picks up this. You see, when I press on the sound plane here, what you see from the, the application is a, a picture of the, the 2D pressure across the, the whole surface of the, the instrument. So it's you can really use this data for a lot of things, uh, and I wanted to leave it really open-ended like that and just have the software give the data to you without really many preconceptions of what you're going to do with it because people might do way more interesting things with it that way than I would think of. Um, but then the app will also... Um, um, detect touches out of this data and send those out as MIDI or open sound control data. So that's that's how typically people play synthesizers, and I, I play alto using the sound plane. Okay, cool. Alto is perhaps the most traditional synthesizer of the Madrona VSTs. I don't know if it, there's much traditional about it. I see the puzzled look on your face, but I want, I want no, to ask. I was, I was trying to think, is that a reasonable statement? And it totally is. On the website, it says it's, it's based off of, um, you know, like the, the Buchla system. So how, did you spend much time with the Buchla system in preparation for this? Or was that just kind of the sound you were looking for? Yeah, so with one physically, no. Um, it's hard. Uh, yeah, actually, they have a great one up at U the University of Victoria. So oh, I was really? lucky in that sense. I got to kind of know it and explore what sounds it makes. Um, but I didn't use it directly when I was programming Alto. And I definitely didn't do um, kind of circuit-level modeling to try and really emulate what the electronics is is doing. I'm, I'm more interested in using... Um, Buchla's work as an inspiration to make something new. Um, but so the, the kind of way I started was it was to say these sounds, these certain sounds I really like from that synthesizer, I, I, I'm not hearing any soft synths that can do them. So I want to make a soft synth that can do these sounds I like, and then we'll see what else, and make an interface around it, and we'll see what else, other sounds kind of fall out of that. Um, so that was one, that was one goal to make some sort of West Coast type sounds I felt were missing from the palette of soft synths in general at that time. And then the other goal was just to make something really usable and um, uh, with a good interface on it so people could program their own sounds uh, very easily. Yeah, I can't wait to dive into it. The interface looks really, really nice. Yeah, one of the things that I do find very beautiful about Alto is that there is essentially a neutral zone in the middle of the interface where patching happens. It is dedicated to that. It doesn't clutter up the rest of the interface. And from there, you can send and receive whatever you want. Now, that patching system, I know it has carried over to Kaivo a little bit, mm -hmm. which is a granular synthesizer. Is It, it is a, a confusing beast to me. <laughs> yeah, that's fair. How do you describe Kaivo? I think, you know... You can argue that sort of everything under the sun has been done as far as people inventing new synthesis techniques. You don't hear a lot about, I've got this new da-da-da now, um, because so much of the territory of of kind of methodology of making sounds out of programs or circuits is... A lot of that's been in the academic domain or has been in the domain of of people simply making the new sounds. And I think a lot of the work to do is making really playable instruments that 
use different kinds of synthesis techniques. So what Kaivo is doing, I wanted to do something with physical modeling because I, I just found it really interesting to play with, and I, I'm interested in the kind of sounds that come out of it. When you listen to physically modeled sounds, it's an interesting thing. There's this way in which if you compare them to a sample, let's say a physically modeled piano versus piano sample, the physically modeled piano has something the sample doesn't. It's a little different every time, depending on kind of the starting conditions and maybe the noise in the models when you hit it. And you hear this liveness. But on the other hand, there's something, there's usually some grit or something that's lacking, I find, too, um, from the sample. And there's a lot of ways you can get that in there. And there's there's certainly other makers of physically modeled instruments that have approached that in, in different ways to make good instruments. But I took the... Um, I combined the physical modeling part as one module of Kaivo, and then I added in a granular synthesizer to feed the physical models. When people write papers on physical modeling, it's funny. They're like, we did, we did a great job of getting the characteristics of this instrument sound, and whatever's left is kind of the residual. The residuals where a lot of the interesting stuff is to the character and the noise, that's a great place for granular synthesis to come in and provide a complementary piece of the puzzle. Like with the granular synthesizer in there, you can just generate all kinds of weird noisy stuff that, that triggers the, um, the physical models in a really kind of um, synergistic way. It's like an idiosyncrasy injector or something like that. Yeah, <laughs> totally. Do Kaivo and Alto work together then? Do they interface with each other in a way like that? They inform each other in that I'm not, I'm not going to make an endless amount of soft synths and I'm trying to stake out a territory with each one that's significantly different from the other ones. Mm -hmm. Yeah. V Verta is a, yeah. What is it? That's a great question. <laughs> Cause I feel like it's, um, I know it's, it's sort of the, the least explored. Um, it's the least bought of my synths I've made. And, but I think it's kind of one of the most interesting in, in a way. Uh, it's, it combines vocal. It's all about vocals. It's got an audio input section that was inspired by, uh, I used to have an MS-20. If you know the MS-20, it's got a little um, pitch follower on it. It's a pitch to voltage circuit. So it will do some kind of uh, effort to track the pitch of an input signal. And if it's like a sine wave, it does that really well. So you can play a keyboard into it that's like maybe a digital keyboard or whatever and, you know, get MS-20 sounds out of it. So that's fun. But then if you put a drum machine into it, um, you get these really weird sweeping up and down attempts to track the pitch that can make really strange, you know, um, sort of acidy warbles and stuff like that. Um, that's a, it's, a, it's a fun source of... of of voltages varying over time. And uh, I wanted to bring that idea into the plug-in instrument world. And then I had some other ideas that seemed complementary to it, like vocoding and um, vocal oscillators, uh, oscillators that will produce a, a vocal timbre all on their own. V VSTs and you know, plug-in synthesizers in general are kind of limiting in that regard. And people want to get the signals out of it, like, say, from the LFO here, right? You, you might want to get that out. But if there's no predefined output that's for the LFO, you won't get it out of there. From a kind of user experience point of view, it's a little weird to say, 
you know, typically people are used to having VST synthesizers put out, you know, pretty polished audio. Mm. And someone might have a configuration where it blows up their speakers if I decide to send an LFO out through their DC coupled uh, audio interface or something. So I wanted to kind of keep that aspect of it within the box. But man, a lot of people have talked about kind of opening up these modules. I've I've been listening and thinking how we might do that in the future. There might be some possibilities with Bitwig and its modulars, mm -hmm. modulators. I don't know if you've looked at that software at all, but it's I've heard uh, of it. it's but, pretty yeah. yeah, it seems like they actually have the created an API yeah. for exchanging uh well, virtual control voltages within yeah. the soft synth world. Yeah, I think that could be a really interesting. Like I know one of the the main attractors to modular synthesis is the the analog control voltage it would be interesting to mix the world's kind of an unpredictable analog with like the very exact world of digital mm -hmm. and just see how those kind of played around yeah with each other. it's funny you know alto represents a, a attempt to loosen up the what you're calling the exact world of digital in some ways um at one point i even um so there was this there's this watermarking that it's something i'm not doing anymore but i i was doing this kind of license management through watermarking the um, the plugin itself. So I'd like scribble some, scribble your name into some bits and hash it and then mail you that copy. So you have your own unique one. And then I, what I was doing on top of that was using those bits to just tweak ever so slightly some, some variables in things like the random voltage generator that makes the oscillators beat differently against each other or some of the slew generators so that every single copy of it you'd have your own one with its little bit of unique sound just like you get a profit synthesizer and it's <laughs> you know it's got that special magic that another profit doesn't have um people hated that though actually really? yeah oh, i got man. so many yeah i got a lot of feedback like well how do i know is mine better than somebody else's or worse or how do i you know how do i know if i play this on a different version or want to change my license it's going to sound exactly the same I, oh, so man. i got i got a lot of pushback on that there had to have been some people that were really excited about that though you know the the because that's something I... The annoyance that... outweighed the excitement. Really? Yeah, well, and so I, I dropped that idea after a while. Do people even believe in magic? <laughs> <laughs> As somebody who has is, is always been more into just hardware, only because I think it's easier for me with the tactile experience, and it, it's, it, it draws me in more. Hearing something like that would be like an attractive reason to, to go in the box. Yeah. Well, I'm still pushing against that, uh, that digital cleanliness, but I also have to recognize people want to like get their soundtracks done and have them sound exactly the same as last time they brought up the soundtrack project. So I'm, I'm figuring out ways to, to, to make a balance there. Yeah, I think what's unpredictable is, is really complexity, whether it's coming from analog or, or digital. And very soon when you start patching something that's reasonably capable and, and modular, you can feed something back on itself and get to, the, get to that point of complexity. Would this be a good way for someone to understand how synthesis works? Like, what happens when I plug an LFO into this? I think so. I mean, one another real big inspiration for Alta was um, the ARP 2600, of which I also used to have one. And um, not the synthesizer as much as its uh, manual, which was great. If you look at the manual, it assumes that you don't know anything about how sound is generated electronically 
it says, you know, voltages move the speaker in and out. It starts there. And so we actually, I worked with um, a writer um, friend of mine in L.A. and um, uh, an illustrator friend also to, like, do try and do a manual that kind of was fun and approachable and uh, um, gave you an intro to synthesis like that. One of the things I did with it was to, like, you can... That was just me bringing up the level. So most of these, most software synthesizers, um, you have to hit them with a MIDI note in order for anything to happen. Mm -hmm. But this one is constantly, Alto is always just making sound. So I can basically, I can go back to the default patch here and even take off these chords. So there's no patch chords going at all. And then if I pull this level up from the gate here, you're going to hear the, the oscillator just going. So it's a lot more. People have said this was kind of like a gateway drug to hardware modular for them, actually. Yeah, I could see that. that for sure. um, so then I can patch the um, the LFO output into the pitch um, and turn the level of the LFO up. <laughs> and we have two voices going. So this is what just one sounds like, uh -huh. right? Um, you're just modulating one. The frequency of the LFO is one hertz, so we can bring it up to like seven hertz there. And then we're listening to just one voice of alto. But if we bring up another voice of alto, you can do something that's really hard to do with a hardware modular, obviously, and just have a whole other copy of the patch. So basically, it's like having another copy of the of all the modules. Like I I usually think of it as behind this one, like almost into the screen. But the, the all the modules are the same, but the voltages flowing through of them, the signals are all different. So you've set up the same patch now on two voices, and then, and then three, and then four, oh, wow. okay. if you want to do it that way. So yeah, computers really have their advantages. And th I've done this, um, probably the, the most useful innovation that I, I came up with it maybe was this um, voice. It, it's called, it's um, shorthand Vox, V-O-X, just because... Um, it's Latin for voice. You see it on like some old organs, and it was it fit into the interface better because um, it takes up less room. But if you if you patch this into um, say the the frequency of the LFO, um, or we can do it into the pitch even, which is maybe more audible. <laughs> um, what it does is it gives you a it gives you a signal that's different for every. Uh, voice. So for voice zero, the the first copy of the whole synthesizer, that signal is zero. And then for the second copy, it's one, and then okay. two and three. So it basically it it lets you make a patch where all the voices are doing something different. Like we can patch it into the rate of the sequencer. That's one of my favorite things to do. And then you have this you have this um, patch where every you've got four sequencers, everyone's running as a different rate, and we can. We could put that into the pitch, oh my gosh. and just make. <laughs> you see the lights here that are going for each. Uh... Oh, there we go. Now we're setting them to different rates, and now we can put that same Vox signal up to the pitch. So, like the. 
the voices that are have a higher pitch should be playing faster sequences. It's almost like you're um, it's almost like you're playing back samples that you've recreated because the faster the faster sequences are the ones with the faster pitches, but those those things can be controlled totally independently. So, yeah. Oh, that's this that's a more clear one without the LFOs. Yeah. Well, I just you just answered my question from earlier. So, yeah, listener, if you are thinking about getting into modular synthesis or just thinking about getting into synthesis in general, this I don't know why you're listening to this podcast, but um, but you should go to madronalabs.com. And and I mean as far as VST plugins go, this is extraordinarily affordable for how expansive and amazing it is I, I love that you've got like a the oscilloscope display down there too that's super cool yeah right little little scopes are great i love that uh, i love them on the korg sense that came out also man that's that fun. is a great that is such a great and UI, that patch man. is just like three cables yeah it's so funny i told my my friend uh david lutz who uh, we are writing partners for like film scoring stuff. I told him we were coming to talk to you, and he's like, "Man, I've been wanting a sound plane so long." And he's like, "If if only I could make it work with my modular." Ah, well, <laughs> so David, I hope you're be, listening. Yeah, he's gonna be very excited to hear yeah. this. So basically, um, this is the sound plane model A, and I made ninety of these that are all of them, but two are in different people's hands uh, around the world. Um, and so it would be dumb to make a module, um, that the, the greatest possible audience for was 90. And I'm hoping that this, um, helps more people want to get a sound plane model B, which is going to be something I'll be making by the end of the year. So, um, sound plane model B is going to be a lot like this one. Um, except if you can kind of imagine the the wooden part inset in the frame here, mm -hmm. um, more without the without the frame around it, so the whole thing being a little more compact. Okay. Um, that is the idea, and it's gonna, um, you know, this is a good and playable instrument, but there's mechanical things I figured out how to do better in terms of playability and both um, making it easier to assemble here so i can make more of them i want the mo i want the module the soundplane cv module to be available by the time the model b is out um hopefully around the end of this year so are you interested in getting started with modular synthesis but you're worried about the cost join the hundreds of others who have never held a soldering iron in building your own superb modular synthesizer all ai synthesis modules are wiring free skiff friendly have free schematics and full how to build videos they are simply put the easiest to build modules in the world. Not only does AI Synthesis fully support their own modules, they also have general guides for tools to buy, how to build a $26 oscilloscope, and much more. Find out more at AISynthesis.com. Christmas time. Listen up, guys. <laughs> You know the vibrato is—it's almost like a temptation to go with the because you know not not 
not all music wants that that vibrato in it, uh-huh. but um, it, it's so fun to do. <laughs> it's almost like you're you're playing a a violin or something in another another world. It's hard to avoid sometimes, but for my own shows, what I'm I'm trying to do droney stuff where I can I have more a kind of measured approach to it than I do when I'm just sort of fooling around here like now. Like one thing you can do um, on the sound plane, just like on a guitar, you can hit the same note on different strings at once. So I can I'm holding a, a note on one row of the instrument here and then I can add the note also on a different row and then I can start to start to play the notes off each other so I can do flanging and stuff and have a really direct control over the the micro the micro um, pitches of wow. those notes may, may I and try? it's great for drone droney stuff yeah yeah I've got to try this Wow. That is uh <laughs> that is something, man. <laughs> Yeah, I had a really interesting... So I just went to this great event called Superbooth in Berlin a couple of weeks ago. We got to talk about Superbooth. <laughs> and um, it was amazing. I mean, I, I, I got to see... I got the, the best part of it for me was everyone's reactions to the sound plane. And a lot of people were like, wow, this is really wood? Is it really wood? It looks like wood. Is it, is it real wood? <laughs> I was kind of like, why, why would it look like it if it, if it weren't? Yeah. And then um, people seemed very favorably impressed with the... Um, the sensitivity of it, how you, you, a very light touch will give you a controllable sound. I saw a video you posted on Instagram of somebody like really getting after it and really uh-huh. playing it like percussively, and it just it looked like they were having a blast, and it sounded really cool. So it it's also durable, obviously, because he was he seemed to be really well. Yeah, now. yeah. Oh, sure, it's durable. I uh, I was actually a little nervous because I threw I I put this in the checked baggage for the first time because I just didn't have any other way of getting it there, but it it was okay. <laughs> <laughs> Man, it's, so like my my. Just having a little bit of like guitar and and piano knowledge, right? Um, it's a like little, kind of it's a bit of both in it. Yeah, that's I. I feel <laughs> like I'm playing a, a guitar and a piano at the same time, yeah. and just the, you know, my first time playing it, I can I can I can make something that sounds somewhat like intentional and musical with it. Like mm-hmm. so, I could if I spent some time with this, I could really like. And as you said earlier, kind of like you're playing you're playing with your fingers on the on the tabletop. I do right. that all the time. I, I play. I play drums on the steering wheel and mm-hmm. lots of rolls, and like, and I'm thinking like, oh man, like, what you could do with this with just like, uh, like a year of practice, <laughs> the possibilities, Ian. <laughs> yeah, you played Sati's Gymnopedes on here, didn't you? Yeah, it was um, Gnosien was the piece, oh, and um, right. it, uh, yeah, it takes so much uh, concentration. I found compared to. Uh, piano because every the way i normally set this up every every note your finger pressure is controlling the the volume and uh you know if you 
if you kind of lose focus, you can easily like drift from one note to another because there's you don't have the um, the the key. You don't have that division that you know you press down a key and you can't easily of a piano and you can't easily slide to a neighboring one. Uh, mm -hmm. And uh, you know when when the the advantage of this is you can play uh, you know a scale and then you can it's exactly the same pattern um, if you change the key which is something that always bugged me learning piano yeah. but on the other hand the black and white arrangement of the piano is a real great tactile you know where you're at on it mm -hmm. and you know what different chords are shaped like uh, once you learn them in different keys and um, with it, it doesn't take the same kind of attention that this does to stay in tune um so yeah i really have to i have to focus when i do it i think of this as kind of like a solo instrument plus like you can play a really expressive melodic line and you can also back it up uh with another hand but it's not like it doesn't lead you to want to play music like piano with you know um t you know 10 keys at once or whatever yeah just just looking at this and just what you've shown us just now like i, I you you could do a like a full live performance with just alto and the sound playing. Oh, yeah. Like, yeah. very I have, easily. I have recently, and I'm hoping to do more soon. Okay, we didn't really do a patch challenge, but Randy did do a little jam sesh for us uh, using the sound plane with alto, and it is super cool. Um, and we should have some video uploaded from that soon, hopefully. That is, man, that was cool. <laughs> All right. Well, that was a fun chat. Thanks again to Randy from Madrona Labs. We also want to say thank you to uh, our sponsors, Recovery Effects and AI Synthesis. Uh, thank you to all you Patreon subscribers. Uh, if you want to become one yourself, go to patreon.com forward slash modular modcast. We'll see you next week.